0: I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm a very competitive person. It doesn't matter if it's basketball or softball or Monopoly or Bunko or spoons, musical chairs. I play full contact musical chairs. I like to win. And that's true in general of Americans. We're strongly individualistic and competitive. We, we admire the person who can go it alone. Our heroes are the, the, the Clint Eastwood character and the Rambo character. But you know, I've found that with every strength, there's a corresponding weakness. And our fiercely competitive spirit means that we are weak in the area of cooperation. When I think that I don't need others, the result is that I'm really weak. And unfortunately, this same weakness shows up in the American church we often find ourselves competing rather than cooperating. Now, if I was a serious, competitive marathon runner, I'm sure I would stand at the starting line sizing up the people to look out for. Look out for Steady Eddie. He's not real flashy, but he's going to be there at the end. And look out from that for that guy from Kenya because he's got a kick. He's going to... He's going to finish strong and look out for the recreational runners because if they get in front of me, they're liable to trip me up. see, I'm looking out for others, but I'm really looking out for myself. And sometimes I find myself doing that in the Christian race. I'm looking out for others so that I can stay clear of them so that I can make better times. But in the passage this morning, we're reminded that in the Christian race, we're to do just the opposite. We are to look out for others in order to help them. Now in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews has been exhorting his readers to run with endurance the race that is set before them. And He has encouraged them not to grow weary or not to lose heart when they experience God's discipline. And now, before He leaves the subject, He shows them and us that we are not running as individuals competing against each other, that we are running as a team. And we have a responsibility to look out for other people and to help make sure that we finish as a team. At the Special Olympics, some mentally handicapped boys were running the 220. One boy, Andrew, was much faster than the others and he was 50 yards ahead nearing the finish line when he looked back and saw that his friend had fallen. Even though everyone at the finish line was yelling for Andrew to keep running, he stopped. And he went back and he helped his friend to get up. And then together, they crossed the finish line in last place. Now, if poor Andrew had just been as smart as us normal folks, he would have known that he was supposed to win, not help his friend. Well, in the Christian race, we're not to be normal. We're not to look out for ourselves. We're to look out for others. We're to go back and pick up fallen friends and run together to the finish line. And this attitude is spelled out in the opening words of verse 15 of chapter 12. It says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Now notice the opening words in verse 15. See to it. That English translation doesn't do justice to the original language because that, that's a verb form of the Greek word episkopos which is translated as a bishop or an overseer. In fact, this similar verb form is used in 1 Peter 5.2 where the elders of the church are told to exercise oversight as shepherds of God's flock. So the idea of this word is that we are to be looking out for people the way a shepherd looks out for his sheep. And who is he talking to in Hebrews 12:15 Well he's talking to the whole church You see each member of the body of Christ has the responsibility to look out for other people the way a shepherd looks out for his sheep If you see someone who has fallen down in the track someone who's injured in the race, your responsibility is not to go tell an elder. Your responsibility is to do as the boy in the Special Olympics did. To go back and help him get up and finish the race. Now, since we're dealing in this passage with not just somebody who stumbles a little bit, we're dealing with some sin in this passage... We need to remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 because He said before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, you need to do what? You need to take the log out of your own eye. Now, I find a lot of Christians use that as an excuse to never deal with the speck in their brother's eye. But that's not what Jesus was saying. If you listen to Jesus' words, He says this in verse 42, First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, that's a priority issue. First, deal with yourself, and then you'll be able to deal with your brother. I think one of the main reasons we shy away from helping others with their spiritual struggles is that we know that there are things in our own lives that aren't right. And we're afraid that if we go to them, they're going to point out the things in our lives. So let me just diffuse that excuse. You don't need to be spiritually perfect to help your brother. If you did, then nobody would help him. There are no pastors here, no elders here, no deacons here that are perfect spiritually. And so that's not the qualification. You see, the qualification is that you need to be Walking with the Lord and honestly dealing with the issues that you have in your life. In fact, look at a passage with me. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I want you to notice something in this passage as well. He's not directing that verse exclusively to the leaders of the flock. He's directing it to you who are spiritual. Now, what's it mean to be spiritual? Spiritual doesn't mean to be perfect. It means you're attempting to deal with the log in your own eye. You're being honest before the Lord about the issues in your own life. And notice, too, that He says you who are spiritual. He doesn't say you who are super spiritual. If you're 50 yards out in front of the, other, the rest of us and you think you're super spiritual, don't bother coming back. Because you really can't help somebody in need. You see, the spiritual person is aware of his own propensity to sin. And that's why it says here, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. He realizes he's vulnerable and so he comes to that individual, it says here, with a spirit of gentleness. With an attitude of humility. He isn't coming back to condemn the person who fell down. He's coming back to restore him. In fact, I find it interesting that that word "restore" in Galatians 6:1 is a word that means putting bones that are out of joint back into place, and so it really fits the analogy of the fallen and injured runner. The aim is to go back and help that person get patched up and get back into the race and finish. Can I make an application? This church will only be healthy to the degree that every member who is spiritual is helping restore those who are struggling to stay in the race. And you know the beauty of that is that one day when you're spiritual and he's struggling, you help him. And in a later date, sometimes you're the one struggling and he's the one who's spiritual. And he's helping you. That's the way the race is designed. The elders and pastors of this church are certainly responsible to pastor and care for and shepherd the flock. But we can't do all of that. In fact, I don't even know everybody in this church, much less knowing their spiritual condition. And so the exhortation is to each one of us to be ministering to every other one. And that's why if you come back to Hebrews chapter 12, those opening words... In verse 15, see to it are directed to you. It means that you are in the ministry. You have a responsibility to come alongside and encourage and and strengthen other members of the team who are in jeopardy of dropping out of the race. If you're 50 yards out in front in your Christian race and you're patting yourself on the back and preparing your victory speech then you've missed the point of the race. Young Andrew got it. You see, it's not a competition. I'm to be going back. I'm to be looking out for others who may be falling. And I'm to go back, pick them up, and finish together. Now, who should I be looking out for? Well, he gives us four categories of people in this short passage. The unbelieving person, the bitter person, the immoral person, and the godless person. Let's look at them together. First of all is the unbelieving person in verse 15. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now, those who believe that Christians can lose their salvation use this verse to support their case, But the Bible clearly says that everyone that God saves... God keeps. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confidence is not in you. Paul's confidence is in him. He's going to finish what he started. Jesus said it this way in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. What security. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, if you notice, all those statements are in the past tense. Because from God's eternal viewpoint, it's a done deal. It's already completed. And if you'll notice, it's a chain. Those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. Everybody who He foreknew ended up glorified. Now, that means that God's plan for you began long before you got involved. And His plan for you extends far beyond anything you can even comprehend. So you're not the one holding it together. He is. And I love the way he finishes Romans chapter 8. He concludes by showing us that if God did the greatest thing by sending His own Son, by not sparing His Son, then nothing can separate us from the unconditional love Of God. You see, the Bible is clear that getting saved has nothing to do with us, and staying saved has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. And that's why I love the way Paul depicts it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Salvation is God imparting spiritual life to those who are dead in their sins. And what part does a dead person play in their resurrection? None. You see, just as those who have been born physically cannot be unborn, those who are born again spiritually cannot be unborn again. You say, well, then, Dan, what does he mean here in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15? When he says, Some come short of the grace of God. Well, the writer helps us with that. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 3, he used this same phrase earlier in the book. Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll pick up in verse 17. He's talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness, and notice what he says. And with whom was He angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And then notice verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you should seem to have come short. There's the same phrase. How do you come short of God's promise? How do you come short of God's rest? How do you come short of God's grace? By unbelief. In fact, what is the grace of God? You ever try to define that? It's kind of hard. It's we we say it's God's unmerited favor. It's God doing for me what I could never deserve. Some of us use the acronym. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. What is grace? It's that character quality of God that caused Him to save me. When not only did I not deserve it, but I was His enemy. Ephesians 2, eight says, For by grace you have been saved. You see, with grace comes salvation. It's a package deal. So coming short of the grace of God is coming short of the salvation that God offers through His grace. And how do you come short of that? You come short by not believing. You see, He's not talking here about a person who has received the grace of God and lost it because that can't happen. He's talking about a person who fails to receive it in the first place. In fact, it's interesting. This same word is used in another familiar passage in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 where the Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did some of us get there and then lose it? No. We never got there to begin with. And that's what he's talking about here. So as you look out for other people, is there someone that you know that might fit into this category. They're claiming to be a Christian, but the indications in their life are that they've never experienced the grace of God. When when push comes to shove, they're all about works and rules and rituals and form instead of faith. They're all about religion instead of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let me warn you, this is a difficult person to go back and pick up. Because often when you go back to pick them up, they're going to be offended because they think they're okay. But I want to keep keep things in perspective that if they are coming short of the grace of God, the greatest offense that you can do to them is to leave them in that condition. So he's saying as you're running your Christian life, you're going to be looking out for other people. And if you see somebody probably professing to be a Christian who doesn't really grasp the grace of God, then you're to come alongside them and try to bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. Second person is the bitter person. Notice the rest of verse 15. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble... And by it, many be defiled." Now, there are times when you can have negative emotions that are not sinful. For instance, you can be angry and not sin. In fact, the Bible tells you to do that in Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. When I hear about a parent who abuses their child and kills their child, I get angry. And that is righteous anger. But see, when I become angry because I'm not getting my way, or when I stay angry because I let the sun go down on my anger without dealing with it, then that anger becomes sin. Guilt is another one of those healthy negative emotions. God uses guilt to bring us to genuine repentance. But you know, our enemy, Satan, often uses false guilt to try to paralyze us in the Christian race. And living with that kind of false guilt is sin. Grief is a gift from God. The tears I saw shed this morning for Cindy, that's a gift from God to help us to deal with loss and to deal with sorrow. But if we allow our grief to become self-pity, then it becomes sin. But having said that, let me say this. There is a negative emotion that is always, without exception, sin. And that is bitterness. You see, you you don't have to explain to me the details about the situation. If you are bitter and unforgiving, then you're sinning. Even if you were totally right and the other person was totally wrong, if you are bitter, you're sinning. You see, if you come up here and punch me in the eye, I'm not giving you any ideas... But if you came up here and punched me in the eye, you would be sinning. If I turned away in bitterness, I would be sinning. Even if I can say, well, he was wrong and I was right, bitterness is always sin. Now, having said that, let me ask you this. Is there someone that you know that has said something to you or done something to you for which you have been unable to forgive them? Now, you know what I'm talking about. Every time their name comes up, your stomach gets queasy and your blood pressure rises. You know, your heart rate kind of goes real fast because you're thinking about that person. Even if it was years ago, every time you see that person, you remember exactly what they said and you relive every detail of what they did. Well, if you've got a person like that in your life, then it could be that you're harboring bitterness. You know, the sad thing about bitterness is that it rarely even bothers the person that you're bitter toward but it does great harm to you. The other person continues on with their life. They may be happy and content. Never even think about you, but because you're holding on to bitterness toward them, they are controlling your life. See, bitterness is like Frankenstein. Bitterness is the monster that turns on its Creator and eventually destroys you. You say, well, Dan, there is somebody that I'm thinking of, but I, I, I hardly ever think of that person anymore. Well, that's not what I asked you. What I asked you was, when you think of that person, what kind of thoughts do you have? And more importantly, have you forgiven that person? You say, well, all right, I'm a little bit bitter, but it's no big deal. Well, I would beg to differ with you. Because God obviously thinks it's a big deal, because here in Hebrews chapter 12, he puts the bitter person right between the unbelieving person and the immoral person and the godless person. Let me tell you why it's a big deal. Because if you have unresolved bitterness in your life, you are not right with God. If you have unresolved bitterness in your life, you are not walking in the Spirit. You are walking in the flesh. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because Galatians chapter 5 says, if we walk in the Spirit, the Spirit of God will produce His fruit in our lives. And His fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't see bitterness in that list. Do you? You see, the evidence that you are walking in the Spirit is that you can forgive other people no matter what they have done to you. The evidence that you are walking in the Spirit is that you can remove them from your hit list. The evidence that you are walking in the Spirit is that your bitterness is is replaced by joy and peace and kindness that doesn't come from Me. It comes from the Spirit of God. But not only is bitterness a big deal because it eats you up, it also defiles other people. Look at verse 15 at the end. It says, It causes trouble... And by it, many will be defiled. Now, I find it interesting that of these four issues unbelief, bitterness, immorality, and godlessness this is the one that the writer considers the most dangerous because he warns us about it. He says it causes trouble and it defiles many. Bitterness is not a tidy little sin, you can't keep it hidden. There is always a spillover effect with bitterness. You see, you don't have to be bitter at your spouse to ruin your marriage. You simply have to be bitter at your dad. You don't have to be bitter toward other people to ruin your relationships with them. You simply have to be bitter toward God. And it will affect all of your relationships. And if you share with me the reason for being bitter toward another person, then I can be bitter toward them too. And I may not even know them. So it spreads and it multiplies and it defiles. You know what kudzu is? (laughs) Drive through the South and, and, and you see kudzu. It's called the vine that ate the South. It's a vine that originated in China and then during the Depression it was introduced into the South as a ground cover to prevent erosion. But it spread out of control and today you can be driving down the interstates and you can see it covering trees and covering power lines, even covering abandoned buildings. It just grows and grows and it's out of control and it just smothers everything. Well, bitterness is just like that. It starts to spread. And you can't contain it. It will spread and multiply and destroy. So, as you're running in the Christian life and you're looking out for other people, do you see anybody that might fit into this category? Maybe they're bitter at God because of their circumstances. Maybe they're bitter at a person, or maybe they're bitter at the elders, or maybe they're bitter at a church. I met a lady one time who was so bitter at a church that she'd never been back to church in fourteen years. That was her excuse. Just ate her up. If you know someone and go to that person, how do you remove bitterness? Well, if you look at verse 15, it tells us, it calls it the root of of bitterness. That's a significant concept. You see, if I have weeds in my landscape, which I almost always do, I could go out there and cut them off. And my neighbors would look over right after I cut all my weeds off and they'd say, man, that looks good. But in a few days, those weeds are going to be just as tall as ever because I didn't deal with the real problem. You see, to eliminate the weeds in my landscape, I've got to pull them out by the root. And to get rid of bitterness in your life, you have to pull it out by the root. Now, our passage doesn't say this, but let me introduce this concept because I really think it's true. I think that the root of bitterness is unforgiveness. Because when you're bitter at somebody, you're holding something against them and the only way to deal with that root is to forgive them. Because once you forgive them, then bitterness shrivels up and dies. And the key to forgiveness is found in Ephesians 4.32 where it says we're to forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven When you really grasp how God has forgiven you, then you'll find it easy to forgive others. You could say, well, you don't know what they did. Well, you need to think about what you did to God. And He forgave you. If God could forgive you everything, then you can forgive another for what they did to you, even if they were totally wrong and you were totally right. You know there's a great analogy of this in the Old Testament after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15 they were thirsty and they came to a place called Marah which means bitter because the waters were bitter. You know what God told Moses to do? He told him to cut down a tree and throw it into those bitter waters and they would become sweet. I think that that tree represents the cross. Because what is the only thing that can turn you from bitterness to sweetness? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Because number one, when I come to the cross, it means dying to me. Dying to my interests. Dying to what I want for me and, and and dying to my rights. So when I'm dead, it's hard to offend me. But at the cross, no, not only do I die to myself, but I experience God's full forgiveness. And when I really appreciate the forgiveness that He's given to me, I'm able to extend it to other people. Third person is the immoral person. Verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Now, at first glance, that would seem to indicate that Esau was both immoral and godless, and he may have been, uh, but the Old Testament doesn't really indicate that he was immoral, unless you count the fact that he married three pagan women. So I tend to think... That the best way to understand this is that the immoral in this verse is a standalone statement and that the godless person is illustrated by Esau. It's a minor thing, but but that's the way I take it. Now, this word immoral is an interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word pornos, from which we get our English word pornography. It's not a specific word, it's a general word. It means sexual sin of any kind. And our culture seems to think that we invented sexual immorality. But it's not a recent discovery. If you go back to the book of Genesis, in Genesis 19, we read about the sexual perversion in Sodom. Lot's daughters committed incest with him in that same chapter. Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped in Genesis 34. Reuben had sexual relations with his father's concubine in Genesis 35. Judah committed sexual immorality with Tamar in Genesis 38 and Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce Joseph in Genesis 39. You see, from the early stages of the human race, this has been a powerful source of temptation. Now the Bible teaches that sex is a beautiful thing in God's eyes. He created it for us to enjoy. It's His gift to a husband and wife. But when we take that gift outside of the marriage bond... It's sin. And the Bible doesn't call it an affair or a fling or a rendezvous. The Bible doesn't call the person who does it a player. The Bible calls that person, in this verse, an immoral person. So as you're running in the race and you're looking out for others, is there somebody that might fit this category? you. If so, you don't really have an option of whether or not to go to that person because Jesus commanded you in Matthew 18 that you are to go to Him and confront Him. And if He repents, you have won your brother. And if He resists the series of attempts to restore Him and does not repent, He must be put out of the church as Paul instructed us in 1 Corinthians 5. But it all starts with your attempt to go back and pick Him up. Our human tendency is, there's an immoral person. I better get away from him. He might contaminate me. The Bible says our responsibility is to go to Him in the attitude of Galatians 6.1 and seek to restore Him and run together to the finish line. Fourth person is the godless person. Verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Esau was a godless person. Now, we, we usually think of godless people as unchurched, degenerate pagans. But Esau started out in the place of greatest privilege among the people of God. It was Abraham, Isaac, Esau. He was the one in line for the blessing. So what made Esau a godless person? Well, I see two things in these two verses. Number one, he mortgaged the future for the present. Look at verse 16. Godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now, Esau was a pretty likable guy. He was, he was kind of a... Man's man. He was a skilled hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He was a natural leader. The Bible says he had a band of 400 men who followed him around. He had beautiful wives. He fathered sons who became chiefs of their tribes. So he succeeded in his family life. He succeeded financially. He succeeded by becoming politically powerful. But he failed where it matters most. He failed with God. The birthright conveyed certain blessings and inheritance rights that came to the firstborn son. And of course, with Abraham's descendants, these rights and blessings especially referred to God's covenant promises. These blessings had first been given to Abraham and then they were passed down to Isaac. And now Esau found himself in line for these blessings because he was the firstborn son. But apparently Esau had looked at his grandpa and said, you know, grandpa never received any of those promises. And he looked at his dad and said, you know, dad has never received any of those promises. Those promises are just pie in the sky by and by. And so one day he said, hey, I'm hungry. What good are some vague future promises if I starve to death? And he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. And the Bible captures his attitude this way in Genesis 25-34. It says, And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Just like it was no big deal. You see, Esau was a godless person because he wasn't interested in the future promises of God. He was living for the here and now. Second thing that made him godless, he sought the blessing of rather than the blesser. Look at verse 17. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You remember that Jacob later conned his father Isaac out of the blessing, and when Esau realized what had happened, he wept and begged his father for the blessing, but it was too late. And verse 17 says, "...he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." Now, what was it that he was seeking for with tears? Well, I don't think it was repentance. I think it was what it mentions earlier in the verse. I think it was the blessing because if you go back and read the account, in Genesis twenty-seven thirty-eight, it says this, Esau said to his father... Do you only have one blessing, my Father? Bless me, even me also, O my Father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. See, he wasn't crying out to God. He was crying out to his dad. He wasn't sorry about his sin. He was sorry that he didn't get the blessing. He was regretting. He wasn't repenting. He was like most of the crowds in Jesus' day. It always amazes me to read the Gospels and see there were 5,000 people and then there were you know these huge crowds out there. And when you get to Acts chapter 1 and the church is about to be born, there's a prayer meeting with 120 people in And I'm always like, well, where did all these people go that were crowding around? Well, I think they were people that were there for the free food They were there for the physical healing. They were there to see the miracles. But when Jesus gave His message that you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Me, they walked away. And I think there are many people in the church today who are in it for the goodies. If God will give them a happy marriage, a nice family, good health, a comfortable lifestyle and prosperity they'll pay their dues. But when life becomes difficult, if severe trials hit, they start shopping around for whatever else might work. You see, when you really boil it down, their allegiance is not really to God. It's to themselves. If they can use God to get what they want, they'll do it, but if God isn't working, God isn't working, they move on. They're just like Esau. They are seeking the blessing rather than the blesser. And the Bible calls that person godless. In closing this morning, would you ask yourself some soul-searching questions? Number one, Do I know through personal experience God's grace through the gospel? Or have I come short of it through unbelief? Am I that unbelieving person that's described here? Second question Am I harboring bitterness? Maybe over a loved one who died, a divorce that wasn't my fault, an illness I never planned on, a person who wronged me. Am I that bitter person? Third, am I avoiding temptation to sexual immorality beginning on the thought level? Or am I the immoral person? He's talking about here. And then forth. am I guilty of mortgaging the future promises of God for the present things of this world? Am I seeking God for the joy of Him alone or am I simply out for the blessings that He gives? Am I the godless person? In other words, would you ask yourself, in all honesty this morning, if you qualify as one of these people? And if the answer is no, then I want to ask a follow-up question. As you're going forward in the Christian race, would you look out for these people? When your brother or sister has fallen in the race or is in danger of straying off the course, would you be like that boy in the Special Olympics? Go back. And help your friend get up and run together to the finish line. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back.